to the Building Bite Podcast, a podcast for construction owners, insurance professionals, and contractors, where you can hear from the experts about key topics that can help you be successful. I am Peter Duggan, President and CEO of Proactive, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Dierksen, and our guest, Jason LaMonica, one of the industry's leading subcontractor default insurance experts. Jason is Senior Vice President and Profit Center Leader of Subcontractor Default Insurance at AXA Excel, the leader in the SDI marketplace. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Mike, how about you? Doing great, Peter. Thanks. Jason, (laughs) great to have you on. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. I'm really excited for the audience to hear the good stuff, Jason, that you're bringing today. But before we get to the main topic, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm one of the crazy few that went into the insurance business on purpose. I actually went to what is now part of St. John's university at the time was the college of insurance and I majored in insurance. Yeah. I did this on purpose. I started my career at Reliance national, the company that no longer exists. And then I spent about 14 years at Zurich before coming over to XXL to start up the SDI company. Very nice. And when we last spoke, we discussed the current state of the market. And what was very interesting is because of your history, you had seen, you know, and lived through the SDI space in 2001 and then also in 2008. And I think what's really valuable to the audience is hearing a little bit about your experience. What did that look like in relation to the SDI marketplace? And once we go through maybe 2001 and 2008, you can talk a little bit about the current marketplace. And then what we'd really love to get are those five key tips that you mentioned in any market like the current one, those five key tips that the audience can uh, take away. So first, before we get into the current state of affairs, tell us what it was like, paint the picture for us of 2001, if you would. Yeah. So, you know, no two recessions are built alike. And 2001 was the dot-com bubble, right? So the stock market was irrationally high. Uh, I think um, Greenspan used the term youthful exuberance, or maybe that was the one before, but same same applies that there was overvaluation based on no earnings in a lot of very big or or dot-coms and or startups. And that didn't really have a whole lot to do with the long-term health of the broader credit system. So it was, the economy was less impaired, I think, longer term than it was in 2008. Uh, still had a negative effect on contractors and subcontractors. It did affect demand, and work was diminished as a result of that. 2008, on the other hand, was the cataclysmic financial meltdown. And that really stemmed from an overabundance of credit, credit that should not have been out on the street, right? both in terms of individuals and getting mortgages, but credit extended in the commercial sector as well. And the proliferation of credit default swaps and all that sort of stuff, mortgage-backed securities that backed up a lot of the credit on that that was thought to be grade A and wasn't, right? So, So that was a much more cataclysmic event for everyone, right? Not just the financial industry, but it affected the construction industry, it affected every industry. And that was much more devastating. There were a lot more defaults on the contractor and subcontractor side than there were in the 2001 era, but both definitely led to an increase in in that. 
In 2008, as you said, there are more subcontractor defaults. Did those come subsequent to the recession, heading into the recession? When did you see them? Yeah, great question. So there's a chart that I have that kind of shows historically surety industry loss data, which is the best corollary we have for SDI loss data because SDI loss data is only about 20 years worth of data, whereas surety goes back 80 plus years. And it overlays periods of recession going back to 1958 through, I think, about 2015. And it shows industry loss ratios for the same period of time. And what you notice is after every period of recession, there's an increase in, in loss ratio. And it's always in the recovery. It's not during the recession. It's during the recovery. And that makes some logical sense if you think about it, right? So during the recession, everything's contracting. Subcontractors and contractors alike are spending cash on their balance sheet. They're burning through their working capital. They may, they may lay off people because they're getting smaller. They're doing less work, uh, smaller work, that kind of thing at smaller margins. Then as the economy starts to rebound, there's more work. So margins go up and the subs and GCs both are looking to expand quickly to take on bigger, better work at better margins and they overextend themselves, right? So they're used to I used to do $50 million jobs before, now we have $20 million jobs. They're small, they can afford to do $20 million jobs, and then they see a $50 million job with a better margin across the street, they try to expand quickly, and their capital and their staff doesn't support doing that. Right? But they're used to being able to do that, so it's a no-brainer for them to go with that work. That's the trap that many contractors fall into. Yep. That makes sense. All right. So given those two experiences, Jason, let's move now to the current market. What do you think we're going to see in this upcoming year? If you have that crystal ball that you have, I think somewhere in your office, right? Yeah. Yeah. I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> many a person have failed miserably trying to time the market. So I'm, I'm not going to try to, to do that now. If I could, we'd be having this discussion on my yacht, uh, but we're clearly not. So, you know, what's in store is a great question. I wish I could definitively answer it for you. I can't. There's a pretty wide margin of error right now in most economists' view on what's going to happen going forward, right? So we had the pandemic that we're obviously dealing with, everyone's social distanced. It affected demand. We were in a recession in 2020, which is defined as two quarters in a row of GDP decline, right? We're technically no longer in that, right? Our, our economy rebounded strong at the end of the year. But is that real, right? And was the recession real? Great questions that I don't know the answer to. I'm not an economist. I don't even play one on TV. But the simple truth is we could go dramatically higher in terms of the robustness of the economy, or we could plummet back into a longer recession. And I'd put the odds at 50-50 right now. I really don't know how to call it. If you, our friends at FMI do a great job of putting out some construction forecasting materials, and you know they have a pretty wide delta right now on their predictions in a way that I haven't seen in a really long time. So we could double dip. We could go into another recession, in which case demand will be affected. There'll be less work, too many contractors to bid that work. Margins will go down, and when we recover, there will be a definite increase in losses. We could just bounce back right now, in which case there'll be some increase in losses, but not nearly as bad as if we doubled it. Mm. And Jason, you know, last time we, we connected, you were mentioning that after the 2001 and 2008 financial crisis, you know, the way that we wrote SDI changed. 
right? And there were some, some differences and, you know, we learned a few things and maybe asked different questions. So, you know, given what we've learned from the past and given where we are today, what is it that keeps you up professionally at night? You know, like what is the big concern that you have going into that with the new policies? Yeah, great question, Mike. So, you know, 2001 versus now, the way SDI got underwritten then versus now is very different across the whole industry, right? Zurich introduced the product in 1996, and it's been an evolution, right? It's not surety. It's a, it addresses the same risk as surety, but you can't approach it the same way that a surety would approach their risk because it's a different mechanism of coverage. So we, we had a lot of learning along the way. The robustness underwriting, I think, is way better now than it was then. We delve a lot more into the operational controls of a general contractor than we ever did before, you know, back in 2001 versus down back in 2001. Even in 2008, the, the underwriting was better than it was in 2001, but still has evolved. Uh, things like quality control are a much bigger area of focus than they ever were prior, post-2008. A lot of issues around quality, maybe defaults led to that. So we look at everything a contractor does from their basic business plan, where they work, who they work with, and how they select their subs, to in-depth around pre-qual, quality management, contracting procedures, and, uh, and checks and balances in place, staffing, resumes of the, of the team and, and that they're going to put on a job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Too many things to go into here. But the, the, suffice it to say that we both, the way that we have it right now is way more detailed than it was back then. Uh, the second part of your question was, what keeps me up at night? Well, many things. So first and foremost, it's the recession, right? You know, did, are, are we done? Uh, is, are we going to have another, another blip? Um, how bad is it going to be? What's it going to do to loss ratios and default ratios? Then certainly, based on past experience, it would tell you that we're going to have more defaults. Where are they going to be? What's going to drive them? And are our customers you know, doing all the things that they, they know how to do really, really well to prevent and mitigate those defaults. Those are the things that, you know, well, whether we're in a recession or not, those are the things that always keep me up. That seems logical to me. And here's where the magic comes, Jason. So having lived through that in 2001 and 2008, knowing what you anticipate, you mentioned to us the last we spoke, the five tenets. So if I'm a contractor listening in the audience and I'm getting the sage advice from your experience, can you walk us through those five tenants and give us a sense of what the contractor should be looking out for? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the truth of the matter is there's a lot more than five, but there's five key things that a contractor needs to look out for. The list of things that a contractor absolutely needs to look out for is too long to go into in a, in a, in a podcast, right? You know, there, there's a million ways that a contractor can get into trouble, but the key ones are start with project pursuit, right? You know, picking the jobs that you're going to go after. Are they in your wheelhouse? Do you know the owner? Do you know the means and methods, the contract? language, the sub-trades you're going to work with, the geography you're in. If all of those things or most of those things are very familiar to you, you're probably setting yourself up for success. If a lot of those things are new to you or less familiar to you, that's increasing risk. It's, it's really that simple. And the project pursuit is the first decision a contractor makes. And if you make a bad decision first, many bad decisions will follow. Right? It's really hard to make a good job out of a bad project pursuit decision. And that will lead to so many other decisions 
that get into trouble in all of the other tenets that I'm talking about, right? So, so that was the first one. The second one is prequal, right? So you got to choose the right job first, but then you got to choose the right partners to build it with, right? And quality partners usually come at a premium, right? They're not going to usually be the cheapest ones out there, and that can affect your margins, right? So if you made a bad project pursuit decision and you realize you're in over your head, now you're looking to pinch some pennies and squeeze some, some margin out of somewhere else, it gets really tempting to take that low bidder who's less qualified than the other or one of the others that, that you've got on your list. It's really good to work with repeat subs that you know really well. It's really good to continually check up on their financials, their staffing, you know, their, how extended are they in credit, how much working capital do they have, and most of all, cash. Cash is king. Right? Cash can cure a lot of problems. Not all problems, but a lot of problems. <laughs> So if they have a lot of cash on hand, that's definitely a preferable scenario. And that's not always the case. So, so picking the right partners is, is, is number two on my list. And Jason, um, if I could do a quick follow-up on that. Sure. A lot of the builders that I'm talking to are trying to figure out a way to, you know, you did a pre-qual maybe prior to COVID. You did a pre-qual at the end of uh, 2020. But they want to get continuous information about that sub from a cash flow perspective. Do you have any guidance on um, how to do that and if that's a good idea? Oh, yeah. So, so first and foremost, it's a great idea. Let me, let me make sure I, uh, I underscore that. I, I think it's a fantastic idea. Thank you for bringing it up, Peter. Um, the, uh, the best way to do that is to start with your contractual language and your subcontract, right? So subs will give you their financials most of the time to get the work. But if you don't put in the subcontract that you have the right to see their financials periodically as needed, they don't have to give them to you again. Once you sign the subcontract, they have the leverage, right? So it's better to write in there that, hey, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to periodically check up on you, make sure that you have, are, are still able to perform. And one of the ways that I'm going to do that is to check on your financial health. And I'm going to write it right into the contract that you're required to give it to me upon demand, you know, X number of times a year. It's, it's, it's not meant to be owners, right? You know, you're not trying to audit them constantly, but you do have a right to see their financial information at least annually, if not semi-annually. Yeah, and that's an epic nugget in my mind because a lot of the builders I talk to are going to be asking for prequal and requal, but your idea, get it into the subcontract, add it as an addendum, something that makes it a required step that everybody's going into. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we need to erase the word prequal from our dictionaries and just put continuous qualification. Mm-hmm. Conqual. I'm in. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I wish I could take credit for, for coining that phrase, but I, I didn't. A, a good friend and, uh, and business partner of, uh, of ours, James Shea from ACIG, came up with that. So credit to James for that. Great term. And it really reframes how everybody should think about how they qualify their, their trade partner. All right, good. So I'm a contractor. I pursued a project with an owner I know in a market that I know with a sub that I know and I got a I got it in my subcontract that I can look that I have my conqual subcontract clause. What else do I have to pay attention for? So next I would go to quality, right? So QAQC. If you do all the, the first two steps right, but you don't check in on the work put in place by your subs to make sure that they build it right, you're potentially setting yourself up for an enormous loss, right? So, so in SDI, 
financial insolvency has traditionally been the leading cause of loss that's changing now. Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the, the most costly form of default, uh, you know, insolvency is more frequent. The costliest form of default is quality. So when your sub builds it wrong, and then you have to go and rip it out and build mm -hmm. it again, now you're paying for the same work twice. It's way more costly than it would be normally. So, so we have a, uh, a metric that we keep across our book of, we call it the multiplier, right? What is the original contract value and what's the multiplier of the original contract value and what it actually costs to complete in a default scenario. The average on our book is about 1.6. So it takes 60% more of contract value to complete a contract on a defaulted subcontract. Like, you know, it, it bounces around, but some, somewhere in that range. When quality is involved, that number is usually more than two. Hmm. So, so a little extra investment in quality control, quality staff can really bring down the size of the loss. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just a simple matter of walking the job site and checking on what your sub can do, it has done, it may sound like the simplest thing in the world. Why is not everybody not doing that? Not everybody's doing that, at least not consistently. We had a, uh, a one claim where it was an electrical sub that had defaulted, and there were warning signs there. The sub was in trouble. They, uh, somewhere along the way, that, that became known, and QHQC was neglected by the GC. We came to find later that you know wire pulls through walls where we thought they had done a whole lot of work. There was wires sticking in one hole and wires sticking in the other hole, but they didn't connect inside. Ouch. Right? So now you got to rip through a lot of walls to run those wires again. That is a giant pain and, and a very big cost, as opposed to if they had done it right the first time and just financially. Mm -hmm. Got it. So pick the right project pursuit, conqual, pay attention to quality. What else? Schedule. So the biggest or the hardest thing to, to quantify when it comes to a default or any contractual claim is delay, right? It's a much more nebulous concept. There are things that can currently cause delay. There's not a generally accepted way to calculate delay claims. There are, I forgot how many different methods there are, 13, something like that. And some of them are combinations of one another. So, uh, and everybody picks the one that develops the, the right number for them, right? The owner picks the one that develops the biggest number, the GC picks the one that develops the smallest number, etc. So if you don't update your schedules timely, regularly, accurately, with your trade partners, with your owner, quantifying a delay loss is extremely hard, right? And just because the sub was delayed, let's say, uh, a month, if a week out of that month it was raining and you couldn't pour concrete, that's a concurrent delay. You're not going to get paid for that week. We want to pay you every dime that, that you're entitled to, but you got to be able to prove it. And if you don't update schedules timely, regularly, and accurately, it's going to be near impossible to prove your, your claim. Right? So, so do yourself a favor. Put yourself in the best position to get paid and also in the best position to, to help yourselves perform. If you're updating your schedules regularly, you will see warning signs. You will see issues that are arising out of the sub's performance before it becomes critical, right? And it'll help you address those to mitigate and avoid loss completely. Excellent point. We see that so often that, you know, when the crisis comes with the default, the resources are so focused on the default 
that it's hard to make sure that there's attention paid to the schedule. And I'm so glad you said that the, the granularity in the schedule, the accuracy in the schedule is so important to demonstrate to your carrier like yourself that the delay, the critical path delay on the project was caused by the default. Excellent, excellent point. Okay, so we've got schedule. We've got one last one. Can you share it with us? Sure. Uh, so the last one, and, and again, it's not the last one, but it's the last of the big five, is contractual wording, right? Know your contract. What are you getting involved in? What are you responsible for? What are you getting forgiveness for? And what are you not, right? Things like that have become more critical now than they, they were still around before, but more critical now because of the pandemic, cost escalation, right? A good analogy for that is post-hurricanes in the South, plywood costs go through the roof because after a hurricane, everybody needs to board up their broken windows, right? And it's not that you can't get the plywood. You can, it's just at a premium, right? And if, if you haven't built cost escalation into your contract, guess who's paying for that? You are, right? So that's, that's one. Uh, the, the pandemic itself, right? You know, force majeure was a big uh, legal term, insurance term that was thrown around as soon as the pandemic started. This is a, not an event that we knew could happen. It was, it was not predictable. Therefore, it's force majeure, which literally means act of God. Right, you know, not something that we could plan for. And most contracts would give forgiveness for force majeure events in the contract. Well, the pandemic's no longer not a known event. Hmm. You know what it is, right? So if there are costs associated with social distancing, shutting down your job site because of a, an outbreak or etc., you're not going to have forgiveness under a force majeure provision now because you knew that going in, right? So address those up front. If, the, if we have to shut down, I get forgiveness on time. I get forgiveness on budget, whatever the case may be. Negotiate that with your owner up front so everybody's on the same page. And then, of, of course, schedule, right? You know, if your job has to be shut down because of the pandemic, are they going to allow you time in the schedule? Or are you going to have to start paying, you know, liquidated damages or delay costs because there was an outbreak of virus on your, on your job site, which you probably couldn't do a whole lot about. Yep. Yeah. And Jason, it's almost like you said earlier, one good decision. If you start from a good decision, it's easy to make the next good decision. You know, so some of the things that we're talking about here, you know, keeping up with the schedules, QC, you know, constant qualification, those are good practices that could, you know, allow you to continue making the right decision. And as you said, hopefully alleviate, you know, and, and mitigate some of those potential issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, I have a question then. If we've talked about some of the, the best practices, you know, what are some good things to be doing? You know, we've talked a little bit about the history of SDI and kind of how we got here. But, you know, you mentioned that FMI has this, the graph, right? And that it, it could go either way. We got a 50-50 split. Is there a time in your estimation, like, is there a, a certain level or uh, enough data where you'd be able to say, I think we're going to go one way versus the other? What, what does that cutoff point feel like to you? Five years after it happens, you know, so it's, 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 I say that tongue in cheek, but it's, it's kind of true. You know, it's a really hard question to answer, right? Economics, insurance, and weather forecasting are all disciplines that use the past to predict the future. And you're considered really, really good if you get it right 50% of the time, right? Which in any other walk of life, you'd be out of business very quickly. But that's kind of the nature of the beast, right? So, Another great analogy is like, it's like driving a car by only looking through the rear view mirror, right? You know, you, you're constantly adjusting where you're going based on where you've been. 
And that's not necessarily, as every uh, stockbroker will tell you, that past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance. So the key is not to try to time the market, because like I said, you just can't do that. Many people have gone bankrupt trying. It's better to just continually make adjustments. You know, reevaluate, make adjustments as, as things go on. And if you do that consistently, if you do that with a great deal of discipline, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when the time, when the market turns, you'll be positioned well to take advantage. Good stuff. And Jason, one of the things I've enjoyed about working with you for the last three or four years is the energy you bring and the passion you bring to your work. Uh, so I'm going to twist that just a little bit and say, what gets you the most energized about what you do? Oh, so first off, thank you. I appreciate that. I guess the thing that, that gets me going most is, is just meeting with my customers, right? I love getting out, meeting people, talking to them, learning about their business, asking them, just like you asked me, what keeps me up at night? I ask them what keeps them up at night because what keeps them up at night is what keeps me in business. And I think that's when my team and I shine brightest is when we can really dig into our contractors' unique problems, business situations, et cetera, and find some creative solutions to deal with them, right? There's a price for every risk. The price might be too great to bear for, for, for some insurers, but there's a price for every risk and there's a way to structure a deal to make that palatable for just about every risk out there if you're willing to do the time, putting the time to do the work. Good stuff. We like to give Jason, our audience, a couple takeaways and one action item. And I guess I'd, I'd ask you, of all the good stuff you shared with us today, what would you say those top two or three takeaways are? So it's a lot of the, the, the five that we talked about earlier, right? So start with selecting good jobs, make a good first decision so that you set up yourself up to make a lot of good decisions subsequent to that. Pre-qual, 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 right? You know, you, you have to, put a continuous qual, sorry. You have to continually check in on your trade partners and make sure they're still in good financial and operational health to enable to group to be able to perform, uh, right? You know, your general construction market is the only business in the world where you work for two or 3% margin and 100% of your risk is the performance of others. So if you're not constantly checking in on the health status, both financially and operation of your, of your subs, that's a big mistake. And don't, certainly don't let a low price lull you into rationalizing why a bad trade partner will be able to perform. But mm. that's a huge mistake. And then the, the third one I'd say is, you know, out of those five is contractual wording. Know what you're getting with yourself into, both on the front end with your owner and on the, the back end with your trade partners. Make sure that everyone addresses all of the contingencies that they need to address. Spell out who's responsible for what and make sure everyone is aware of the risks they're taking and they're priced for them accordingly, right? If you think you're just going to pass all of the risk down to your subs and make it their problem, you're setting them up for failure, which means you fail right? That's reputational risk for you as a GC. Oh, yeah, it's my sub's fault. You know, he, he failed. I gave all the risk to him. Yeah, well, if he doesn't perform, who's left holding the bag? Yeah, you, you, you have some insurance in place to, to recapture some of that, but it's never going to make you 100% old. And it's, it's going to impact your time, your effort, your relationship with that owner, and it'll cost you future work. So you know, don't fall into that trap. Yes, awesome. And we always ask for that one action item that you would recommend to our listeners? What is your thought? Hmm, action item. So I guess I would say, I'll put it in kind of a, a big overview kind of way. Hope for the best, but plan for the worst, 
right? That's kind of how I run the practice at SDI and how I tell my underwriters to, to look at their, the way that they underwrite their deals, right? You have to be able to weather the storm, right? So if, if things go bad, how bad can they go? And is it tolerable? And if they go good, that just means you have more margin, right? So when you're bidding work, when you're buying out a job with your subtrades, you hope for the best, but plan for the worst so that you're never in a position where you, you get caught with a risk you didn't understand or a, that you didn't price for or something along those lines and you can weather the storm and stuff with your business. Awesome. Well, Jason, this has been you know, very insightful. I really appreciate your time. We love to offer just a couple quick rapid fire questions at you. So uh, okay. you ready for that? Yeah, bring it on. Fantastic. Well, let's see. What is the biggest trend you might be seeing in the marketplace today? What is that, that number one thing that you're seeing that's catching your eye? Great question. Labor force related claims, right? So um, we've known that there's a, uh, an issue with a lack of skilled labor in the marketplace for a long time, but an inability for GCs to get skilled labor to the job to meet schedule milestones is quickly becoming one of the biggest causes of loss in our book. And that's new in the last couple of years. Hmm. Number two, as an avid reader, which I know you are, up to three business books per week, I've been told. <laughs> Not <laughs> quite the... that many, but a lot. <laughs> what book has captured your attention most? Uh, so a recent one that I really loved was um, No Rules Rules. It's a book by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. And it's, it's all about the Netflix culture and how they do things differently and from how they empower their people, pay their people, give and get constant feedback, what they expect of their people and what their people expect of them, and how it's been super successful for them. So it's, it's really, you know, it turns a lot of HR tenants of, you know, how to run a business or from, a, from an HR perspective right on its head and would tell you to do the opposite of a lot of things that we, we thought we knew to be true. It's not for every company out there, but it, I thought it was extremely interesting and there's a lot, of, a lot of things that you could adapt from that in any industry. Awesome. All right. And what might be something, Jason, that people would be surprised to hear about you? So most people in the industry don't know this, but I've played the piano since I was five years old. And I actually studied under a jazz musician by the name of Barry Harris for a short period of time when I was a teenager. Wow. Mm. That's awesome. And do you have a piano nearby, Jason, that you can hit us up with a few? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a piano. Unfortunately, it's not in my office where the video conference uh, equipment is. So then, then you're coming back. Episode two <laughs> with Jason. Uh, good intro with the piano. That's right. That's right. We got a, we got a new intro outro, you know, we, we know who to call. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Well, Jason, something we always wrap up with, you know, as you know, the title of the podcast is the building bite, bite standing for BIM insurance technology of the experts. But we like to ask, you know, what are you taking a bite out of today? So what's the, what's the best local food choice for lunch today? Hmm. I don't know if it's the best choice for, for lunch today, but I had planned on uh, getting, I, there's a place not far from my house called Pliable. It's like a fruit bowl with uh, mm -hmm. like granola and acai and some other stuff in it. And it's my, I try to not eat too badly and, and it's fruit. So I make the justification that all the sugar and whatnot is <laughs> not so bad for me because uh, it's natural. So that's what I'll be eating for lunch today. 
Nice, nice. As a as a someone who grew up in New Jersey, that's a that's a staple of the Jersey Shore. So yeah. definitely familiar with pliables. Yeah. Love it. Jason, thank you so much for chatting with us today. If our listeners want to hook up with you, chat with you, where can they find you? You know, email, website, LinkedIn, talk to your broker, reach out if, you, if you're looking for some subcontractor default insurance. You know, any of those avenues would, would be totally fine with me, and I'm, I'm happy to talk to you never about whatever. Very good, Jason. Sticking with the food analogy with the building bite, that's a wrap. <laughs> thank you well done thank you <laughs> thanks for having me guys I really appreciate it thank you for listening to The Building Bite this podcast has been brought to you by Proactive check us out on thebuildingbite.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on social media for all future The Building Bite news and updates you can also find us on your favorite apps including Apple and Google Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Amazon. If you have ideas for episode topics that we should cover on the show, or you know somebody who would be a perfect guest, let us know at connect at thebuildingbite.com.